need Bonnie Dykstra to stand up. She is going to be leading the three to six-year-olds. <coughs> She's a skilled teacher who attends at Harvest. Bonnie, where are you? Right here. Ah, there. To us, the topic of evangelism this week. He grew up in a non-Christian military home in North Carolina. His teenage years were dark and dangerous, and he was clearly preserved by the grace of God. He came to Christ at the age of 21, ironically, while following the Grateful Dead around the country. I'll have to ask him why that seemed appealing, but that's fine. At the end of a long, strange trip, someone gave him a Bible to read, and in the pages of Scripture, he met the Lord Jesus Christ, who convicted him of his sin and comforted him with the gospel of grace. This began the hard process of learning how to read the Bible, how to live what it teaches, to process which, that which ultimately <coughs> led to him falling in love with the Reformed faith. Pastor Eric Watkins has been a minister in the OPC since 2001, currently serves as the senior pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in St. Augustine, Florida, where he strongly believes in preaching Christ from all scriptures for all of life. He's passionate about evangelism discipleship, and the beauty of the Reformed faith. God has given Pastor Eric a wonderful wife in Heather. They were married in 1996, spent their honeymoon in St. Augustine. They now have three delightful children, Kira, Carl, and Liam. Eric's mother, Nita, also lives with the family. The Watkins are soon hoping to adopt more children in the near future. Pastor Eric's pastimes include surfing, beach volleyball, and playing guitar. But above all, he loves being with his family and sharing his faith. I bring to you our speaker for this week, Doc, Reverend Dr. Eric Watkins. Give me just a moment, get all my toys set up, uh, most important of which, mic, any difference? Okay, sounds the same from up here. That's my very important Fiji water, it's the source of my superhuman strength. We are very happy uh, to be here, uh, let's say thank you for the invitation to come back. Uh, I had the privilege of doing this camp. Okay, so from that t-shirt year, whatever year your shirt says, 2005? Yeah, okay, testify. What year was that? Okay, so it's been uh, a few years. You've recovered from the last time that I was here and now have very graciously had me back. Uh, one uh, clear notable difference now is that this time I'm carrying with me this rather humbling little feature, uh, the bane of my existence, reading glasses, which I've discovered I have to carry these with me. I spoke at a seminary not long ago, and the lighting was a little dim, and, you know, a camp, you just never know, right? So I got there, and the lighting was kind of dim, and I, I literally couldn't see the text that I was supposed to be reading from, and then it was, it was so humiliating. I ended up paraphrasing poorly at parts, I'm sure, and then praying, and I just was crumbling as I went. So now I carry these things with me just in case uh, they truly are cheaters. Um, I want to say not only thanks for having me, I want to introduce, well, I can't really introduce everyone I wanted to because some of them have already uh, left, but I'll just tell you who's in our party. It's a motley crew. 
to say the least. Uh, so I have with me my 11-year-old daughter, Kira, and my 10-year-old son, Carl, uh, who were with us when we came last time. Uh, you should know, when I got asked to do this camp, and we talked about it as a family, we're using a vacation week, like most of you, to be here. Uh, there were fireworks, uh, pardon the pun, in our family at the idea of coming back to family camp. Uh, my wife, Heather, is not here. Uh, Liam uh, is also not here. Uh, a week and a half ago, we were in Southern California, and uh, I think we'll be recovering from that trip for a long time. It was a collage of extremes. We saw old friends and family. That's where I went to seminary and interned, and that part of it was great. Our one-year-old got a diaper rash at the beginning of the trip that got worse the entire trip. He was literally bloody by the end of the trip. Uh, he stopped eating for a day. We almost went to the ER. Uh, it's real hilly where we were. He couldn't negotiate hills. We live in Florida. The closest thing that you have to a hill is one step. Um, anything over that gives you a nosebleed. So he had a really hard time adjusting to that. And then to top it off, uh, on the last day, we get on the plane to come home. It's an afternoon flight. We get trapped overnight in Atlanta. Spent the night on the floor of the Atlanta airport. Got home the next day after daybreak with one diaper to spare. So my wife and I will not be in the same room for about another month. Uh, after a good bit of counseling, I think we'll be fine. It really is an honor to be here, not only with my family. Uh, we have a, a year-long intern, uh, Brock. Uh, if you uh, raise your hand. Uh, so Brock, uh, this makes some of you feel close to home. Brock's actually from Canada, and uh, we like him anyway. <laughs> it begins. Uh, this past week, you know, we had a little, uh, there's a little Independence Day note there, but we began the service by congratulating the six Canadians that were present about Canada Day. So we're trying to be as sensitive as we possibly can. Uh, so Brock is here with his 14-year-old daughter, um, Ella, and has uh, more family members back at home. And then we also have two other teenagers who are here with us from our church. Janiah is one. Janiah, raise your hand back there. She's a beautiful young lady on the back. Uh, she and her brother, DeAndre, are also here with us. So we put five teenagers and two kids on a plane to come here. That's how much we wanted to come and be a part of your camp. So I'm very grateful. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer, and then I'll jump into uh, my lecture properly. I do hear a little bit of feedback, uh, unless it's just me hearing voices, and that tends to happen too. <laughs> so you can decide which ones are real and which ones are just in my head. All right, let's pray. Lord and our God, we thank you for the mercies that you bestow upon us. Uh, we thank you that those mercies are new every day in Christ. We ask, O oh Lord, that as we now look to your word and think about the subject of evangelism, that you help us to think our thoughts after you, that where we need humility, even uh, repentance, we pray, O oh Lord, that you might add those things to our heart. Uh, we pray as well, Lord, that where we need comfort, uh, encouragement, and grace. We pray that you would multiply those to us as well. We pray for the way not only that we think about evangelism, we pray for the things that we uh, say and do. We pray for our churches. We pray that you would renew our first love for Christ and also our sense of calling to participate in the Great Commission even until the end of the age. So now, as we begin uh, our focus this morning and for the next few days, we pray, O oh Lord, that you help us as iron sharpens iron to sharpen one another, but ultimately, help us to glorify and enjoy you together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, I'm going to stop at 1045, right? Well, if you're yeah, and then we'll stop for a short break, and then we will uh, 
then we'll rejoin. I'll go ahead and tell you that I have a very postmodern sense of time. What feels like 10.45 to you may not feel like 10.45 to me. <laughs> so we'll do our very best to just sort of negotiate there through the middle. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to read from Joshua chapter 1, and then we're going to turn from there to Matthew 28. So we're going to read these two texts, both of which I trust are familiar to you, especially the second one that we'll read from Matthew 28. Uh, but as I read the two texts Joshua uh, from Joshua 1, and then we turn to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, what I'd like you to think about uh, is what's common between the two of them as it relates to the theme of evangelism, and uh, I'll develop those things in my speech. So let's hear uh, the Word of God now from Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, Toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. All right, now please turn over to Matthew 28. you're turning, it's really quiet, or you're just really quick. All right. That's, that's better. Why did that take so long? Pastors need that sound. That's, that's a very comforting sound for pastors, the sound of turning pages. You know, our, our kids have those little noisemakers. You know, pastors need to hear this sound. Should I get that right there? Hear that? Isn't that soft? That's, that's white noise for me. Actually, it lulls me to sleep. All right, so from Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thus far, the reading of God's word. So we've already prayed. Uh, let me go ahead and uh, jump into the things I want to talk about related to the subject of evangelism. And I'll do it uh, by beginning with a, a little uh, illustration about 
uh, the importance of our subject. So my son uh, is named after an old dead uh, Dutch guy uh, named uh, Gerhardus Voss. Uh, we don't have a lick of Dutch in us whatsoever, uh, but to make a number of you at least feel more comfortable, we named a kid after a Dutch guy, so now we're all family. Uh, Gerhardus Voss taught at Old Princeton. Many of you recognize, might recognize his name. Uh, if not, there's still time. And he's just a, he's a fantastic uh, theologian thinker. He had a lot of influence on my own development personally, and I'll illustrate that at a few different points. Uh, I'm sure you know the name J. Gresham Machen, uh, who was a significant figure in the OPC's history, very significant figure, and I'll actually do a talk tomorrow on Machen and evangelism. That's one of my favorite talks to do. Uh, so when Machen was a student at uh, Princeton, uh, back in the day, he actually delivered a sermon as a student before Voss, and I found a copy of this handwritten sermon in the basement archives at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. It's kind of a neat treasure uh, you know, for a guy like me to find a handwritten copy of a sermon of Machen's. Uh, there was this really amazing lady named Grace Mullen. Uh, if you ever met her, you know she's one of the most uh, sweet, godly people that ever lived. And she gave me this little private tour of all things Westminster and showed me this sermon. And, and Machen wrote in this sermon, uh, in his handwriting, in the body of the text, that, now, you've got to follow this line pretty carefully. This is, this is important. That the most important thing that the church does is evangelism. So Machen said, numero uno, uh, the most important thing that the church does is evangelism. And then it says over on the side, in a different color ink, Dr. Voss disagreed with me. For me, this is really big stuff, right? I mean, you know, here's Voss. Uh, critiquing Machen's like rumble in the jungle, and I get pretty excited and you know, immediately begin to think, like, why would Voss disagree with Machen? That sounded right to me, that the very most important thing that the church does is evangelism. Uh, what might be more important than that? Well, it's a good question. That actually uh, has changed my thinking in a lot of ways, I think for good. Uh, but the note goes on to say, Voss says, worship is the most important thing that the church does. And then Machen even comments, and he is right. So let's, let's unpack that uh, for just a moment. Uh, what is the most important thing the church does? Well, actually, it is worship. Uh, we are very rightly to be so protective about worship, right? And the reason why is worship is what we'll be doing for all eternity in heaven. Worship is, if I can use a big word, uh, eschatological. That is to say, it's the activity of heaven itself. In heaven, we will glorify and enjoy God for all eternity as perfected people in the context of perfected worship. Worship is our goal. Man's chief end is to what? Glorify and enjoy God forever. In heaven, what we will be doing forever is glorifying and enjoying God. So worship really is the most important thing that the church does, even in this world. Okay, so hopefully everyone uh, agrees with that, right? Uh, but if worship is the most important thing the church does, what's number two? I mean, number two is not bad, right? Finishing second place in a race, still get on stage, right? What's the second most important thing that the church does? Well, I'm going to argue, and I'm going to stick to this, it's evangelism. That Machen was one off, but he wasn't entirely off. The most important thing the church does is worship, but the second most important thing that we do as the body of Christ in this present evil age is evangelism. And if we 
agree with that, if we are convicted about that, then it ought to make us really take a step back and say, okay, where does number two really fit into the life and practice of our church? Where does it fit into our thinking? Where does it fit into the way that we think about raising our kids and their identity in this world and all the challenges that come with that, right, of being in the world and not of the world, of evangelizing the world without being seduced by the world and those fine lines that we straddle, those teeter-totters that we sit upon. And so we're going to wrestle with that. Uh, But when you think about it, I I, I hope you'll find this convincing. Uh, Evangelism is a means to the end of gathering worshipers. So in other words, while we are still in this present evil age, a significant part and portion of the church's business in this world is to gather together those who will glorify and enjoy God together. Uh, You know, John Piper, and I'm going to quote a lot of people. Some of them you'll think that guy's really reformed, and other people you'll wonder why you invited me back. Uh, You'll just have to kind of deal with that. Uh, But, you know, Piper and others have pointed out that evangelism exists because worship doesn't. There are people out there who are obviously not worshiping God. They ought to be. And what is the door into the house of worship? Well, it's the gospel. And so, you know, evangelism has to happen. Uh, So worship is number one. Evangelism is number two. Evangelism is a means to the end of gathering together those who will worship. And while we are still in this present evil age, that is what, as a church, we are called to do to a significant extent uh, until kingdom come. You behave. That's one. (laughs) You know the story, right? Okay. Okay. So, put this back and work it out. I tend to move around a lot. I get occasionally accused of being a charismatic pastor in the OPC, and I think it's a compliment. I actually almost fell out of a pulpit once. There's a church in Long Beach. It was interesting being back in Southern California. Uh, My wife remembers it as the church where I almost fell out of the pulpit, and uh, we stayed with the family there. Like, did you preach here a long time ago and almost walk off the pulpit? Like, that's me. That's what nobody remembers my content. They remember the fact I almost died, but that's all right. Maybe you'll remember some of the content. All right, so i got to do one other thing. I'm OCD. I've slept on that cord now nine times. That'll be the last one. So what I want to do now is try to make uh, the, the observation that when we talk about evangelism, and even as I read to you from the Great Commission, uh, when we think about these things, we ought not to think of them as things that sort of emerge in the soil of the New Testament as though they were not present beforehand. In other words, the Great Commission that we read from in Matthew 28 is in the New Testament, uh, but so much of it really does blossom slowly out of the soil of the Old Testament. And if we see that, I think what it does is it encourages us to realize, okay, wait a minute, uh, that the beautiful thing that we talk about, the gospel, runs all through the Bible, but so does the idea of the church being the agent of evangelism in this world and the Great Commission being what God was really up to from the very beginning. Uh, So I want to try to uh, persuade us along those lines, and I'll I'll begin this part by just giving you just a little bit of an illustration and backstory. So I went to a Bible college, uh, kind of a Baptist dispensational Bible college in Florida. That's where I met my wife. I'll tell that story a little bit later. 
Uh, but at this Bible college, we memorized tons and tons and tons of Bible verses. Every class began with scripture memory. I thought that was great. Uh, by the time I graduated, I just memorized quite a lot of Bible that I still remember, even like really weird texts. We memorize them for all kinds of classes. Take a book on Pentateuch, and you memorize from the Pentateuch. Take a book on prophets, you memorize from prophets, you know, that kind of thing. It was really good. But I like to imagine just a great big bowl. Think the biggest bowl in your house. And it's full of little pearls. And all those pearls uh, can make a really beautiful necklace, maybe even a really big one. But if you wanted to make a necklace with a bunch of pearls, what do you need? String. Okay, this is not church. You guys can respond to me. We can dialogue here. Okay. Uh, you need string. Okay. Uh, a bowl of pearls unstrung makes no fine necklace. And Bible college for me, in a lot of respects, was like being given a bowl full of pearls. So here I am, I'm memorizing all this Bible. But it really wasn't until seminary, and actually studying some of the Dutch Reformed folks that were wonderful about talking, uh, wonderful at talking about uh, the way in which the whole Bible tells the story of the gospel, like Voss and Ritterboss and you know all these folks I discovered and really fell in love with. That's why I ended up doing PhD work in Holland. Uh, I, I studied Christ, uh, preaching Christ in the Old Testament in a postmodern context. Uh, that was kind of my issue. I just fell in love with that. The idea of seeing the gospel in the Old Testament was wonderfully liberating to me uh, as a young Christian, right? Uh, you have this beautiful you know, two-thirds of your Bible's Old Testament. And if the gospel's only in the New Testament, well, that's kind of a buzzkill, isn't it? Right? Like two-thirds of your Bible is kind of irrelevant. Maybe just has some rules and occasional story about David and Goliath, and okay, be a good David, and all right, well, that's great, it's cute. But there's so much more there. There's the gospel there. There's uh, the trinity there. There's the, the person and work of Christ. All of this is displayed from the earliest pages of Scripture, and to begin to see the Old Testament through the light of the gospel, and to recognize uh, that that was really the song of the Savior being sung softly until the New Testament come and say it loudly, Right? Uh, to use an illustration, again, from Gerhardus Voss, uh, he likes to talk about the Bible as a rose. Uh, my mom lives with us. Uh, and she came to live with us about five or six years ago. She remarried. Um, I'll tell that story another time, too. Uh, but I, I made this deal with my mom that she'd come and live with us. I'd plant her roses. And so there are roses growing outside her bedroom window. And uh, it just makes me think about this illustration all the time. What's the difference between a rose seed and a rose? So here's a little seed, here's a little rose. What's the difference between the two? Are they different things? Okay, this is the OPC. <laughs> that was way too sophisticated, but yes, okay. Thank you for speaking in tongues. You have to remember, I'm a surfer, we have to keep things real simple. Okay, I got like a 14-word vocabulary, you just went into like 18 to 20, so shrink it back. All right, so let's say one word, time. The difference between a seed and a rose is time. They're the same thing, right? Here you have a seed, here you have a rose, but their DNA is identical. If you give a seed enough time in the right conditions, it'll blossom into a rose. Well, another word for time is history, right? Uh, if you fast forward one of those little you know, freeze frame things or whatever, you watch this thing blossom from seed to rose. Well, Voss says that's what the Bible is like. Ultimately, it's just one thing. It's the story of the Savior 
in God's plan to save a people for himself. And that story is introduced into the very earliest pages of the Bible. And then the entire Bible, this is important, is the same thing from beginning to end. The rose doesn't become a turtle or a scallop. It's a rose. And that thing develops slowly until it flowers in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, But, you know, we we recognize this. I think most of our preaching in the OPC is kind of defined by this idea of seeing Christ in all of Scripture. It's just one of the things that we really love and cherish. But what I want to do is to kind of uh, just nuance that picture a little bit and say, well, yes, that's the case, with the revelation of the gospel also comes the, the purpose of the gospel, which is the Great Commission. So uh, if we're going to now just do some, uh, you know, we're kind of jumping across rocks, going across a creek, uh, we're going to just refer to a number of texts uh, in the Old Testament. I'm just going to paint a little bit of a picture for you that hopefully will encourage you. And the point I'm trying to make is uh, that the Great Commission is like this rose. It begins in the earliest soil of the New Testament, and as time, history unfold, the Great Commission does with it, so that when you get to the New Testament, you're looking at the flower, but the seed was always telling you what it was going to be. And if you look carefully, you can actually see it in those beautiful nuances. It's like watching a child grow up. It's like watching flowers blossom in your garden, all these beautiful things growing here. Every one of them has a season. Well, so also does the Great Commission. Uh, So think about Genesis uh, 1.28, Uh, where God tells Adam and Eve, and this is actually before the creation of Eve, by the way, uh, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I gave this lecture in uh, Canada a number of years ago, and somebody playfully uh, said afterwards, uh, we we refer to that as evangelism between the sheets. That was a great phrase. Uh, It's a really great phrase. So God creates... Adam and Eve, right, male and female, Uh, he creates them uh, to have the ability uh, to enjoy one another, right? Uh, He creates them as good, the intimate, beautiful relationship that a husband husband and wife have together in the context of marriage was designed by God and is good and beautiful. And uh, the fruit of that relationship literally is you and me. That's how we got here, Okay. And I know the, you know the subject of sex and all that's kind of awkward and whatever, we tiptoe around it. But uh, setting aside uh, some of the awkwardness and embarrassment that come after sin enters the world, think about it in its pure context. It's God's way of putting in place uh, how the kingdom of God will come into existence. Adam and Eve are to have children, and after them would come children, and children, and children, and children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and Kleinkinderin, for the... Two people out there speak, speak the mother tongue? All right. I want to do that a couple of times, but where else can I do that, right? This is like the closest I get to Mecca. <laughs> so the, the production of children, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. Well, how does that relate to the Great Commission? Well, here's the point. It's the first commission. It's the first commission that sets a stage 
for a kingdom of those who will glorify and enjoy God forever. It's the introduction of those who are image bearers created in the image of God with knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and the relational ability to actually glorify and enjoy God. So when God says to Adam and Eve, I want you to have a whole lot of babies, right? You guys didn't come up with that. It's in the Bible. I want you to have a whole lot of babies. It's because uh, those are to be those who will glorify and enjoy God. That's the kingdom. The Great Commission is a great commission, but the first commission was a really good one too. And all God's people said, amen, amen. right? Okay. Uh, and I, I want to like, fight for the beauty of that. Uh, you know, sometimes I feel like Christians have almost become like, you know, you can't talk about any sort of physical, any, all, so many things have become like off limits because the world has just made these things so tawdry and cheap that we've lost the ability to talk positively and properly about the beauty of sex and intimacy and what God has designed. Uh, it's almost like we've given the whole thing away to the world, and now they're the only ones to talk about it. Take it back. Take it back. I want to take a lot of things back. Right, in a minute, I'm going to talk about Noah. I want to get a T-shirt with a rainbow on it. It says, uh, uh, taking back rainbows for straight people, or rainbows are for straight people too. How, how come they now? They're the only ones wearing rainbows. Anyway, that's not in my notes. A lot of things I'll say are not in my notes. You'll just have to persevere. And if I say something that's offensive, I'm, I, I apologize in advance. I, I'm not trying to, but it may happen. So you have uh, this uh, very first setting of the stage, right? And then after sin enters the world, everything gets not only a little bit messed up, it gets really badly messed up. Come to the days of Noah. Think about this rainbow and uh, what it symbolizes. But when you, by the time you get to Noah, things have gotten really bad in the world. Everything has gotten really bad. Sin, you know, if, if original creation is like a beautiful masterpiece portrait, sin has just ran its ravenous claws down the face of that portrait. And it's still a portrait, but it's really scarred. It's recognizable, but oh, how it's broken, right? To the point uh, where God now is grieved, fed up, angry, and ready to start all over with this guy named Noah. Which, you know, I find an irony. I'm not saying we should do differently, but I did get a little bit uh, snarky smile, dimple in the corner of my mouth, that every church just about somewhere has a picture of Noah and the ark, right? And, you know, there's Noah standing in the ark and the animals and everyone's smiling and the rainbow is out and the sun is shining and everyone's smiling and right down in front of them is an ocean full of dead bodies. It is, when you think about it, one of the most startling episodes in all of Scripture. And, you know, and I get it, you know, Noah and the baby giraffes look cute together with the rainbow in the backdrop. But the portrait is really sobering. The event is a preview of the end of the world, right? And Noah is called, in Scripture, 2 Peter 2.5, very interesting phrase, he is called a preacher of righteousness. In his day, Noah literally stands against the incoming tide of the world's depravity as a herald of righteousness. I think you're actually supposed to picture him. Uh, he's like a master carpenter and a preacher who stands stark contrast to the world, announcing, declaring, judgment is coming. Uh, he's called a preacher of righteousness. An old Puritan uh, named Nisbet uh, said this. He's called a preacher of righteousness because even in that time, he held forth to the people the way of free justification by the righteousness of Christ 
and the duties of holiness wherein justified persons ought to walk. And I love that coming from a Puritan saying, Noah, preacher of righteousness, holding forth uh, free justification by the righteousness of Christ. That's a pretty bold way to put it. Another theologian, uh, Meredith Klein, whom I studied under, Noah performed his prophetic preaching as the mouth and spirit uh, of Christ, the spirit presence from whom all true true prophets were sent forth in this judicial administration of God's covenant. Here's the point. God comes like a judge, and he says, judgment day is here. Noah stands one who uh, announces to the world around him, judgment is coming. And in that stance, he serves as a preacher of righteousness, telling not only of the judgment to come, uh, but apparently even as well, uh, that the only way to live is repentance. And the world, of course, does not. Noah preached during the time, according to uh, Scripture, as God's patience. Remember, God waited patiently in the days of Noah, 1 Peter 3, until uh, the point of judgment came. And Peter goes on to say, and this is where we stand. This is important to me, right? Noah is not just a preview of final judgment, which the Bible clearly says he is, but he's also a preview of where we stand in history. As Noah stood at the edge, at the door of the age to come in judgment, where does the church stand? But in the very same place, saying to the world, what? Uh, God is holy, righteous, and just, and we are broken, rebellious sinners, and the only way to live is to repent and turn to the son of his love. That's why we're here, until the next baptism comes. And in that case, everyone's baptized, according to Revelation, into the lake of fire, the everlasting sea of God's judgment that's never quenched. So all I'm trying to suggest is that when you look at Noah, you see a preview, not only the end of the world, but you also see a little bit of a snapshot of here's the church declaring to the world not only that judgment is coming, but you need to be saved, and the only way that we can do that is in Christ. Abraham, right? Uh, Many refer to Abraham as the miniature of Jesus. Uh, He is the one to whom God announces his great promise, land, seed, and from you a king who will come. And we know, ultimately, all those things are fulfilled in Christ. The land is heaven. I'm not looking to move to the Middle East, right? Uh, The seed is the church, Galatians 3. All those who believe are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And who's the king? The king of kings and lord of lords. But Abraham was not only given a promise, Abraham himself was called to be a blessing to the nations. If you go back and read through the narrative of Abraham's life, he comes into contact with Gentile peoples all around him, and he declares the goodness and faithfulness of God. Uh, He was, in many respects, a blessing to the nation. So two quotes. If in Christ we inherit Abraham's blessing, we also inherit Abraham's mission. Abraham wasn't just told, and I'm trying to be a little provocative here, Abraham wasn't just told, I'm going to bless you, now go hide. I'm going to bless you, go over there and just kind of lie low until it's all done. But rather, he's on a mission. And if we inherit his blessing, we inherit his mission. Uh, Another theologian says the history of mission is the history of the spread of God's blessing, the history of God keeping his promise to Abraham of a multitude of nations. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Where are those nations, right? You come into Israel. Israel is clearly referred to as a city set on a hill. Israel uh, is called uh, early in its life and later as a light to the nations. 
Uh, one of the lectures I like to do on this subject, well, it's really a sermon, uh, is on Jethro. Uh, really cool. Moses' father-in-law is a Midianite priest. Uh, he was a witch doctor. I've been to Haiti, and I've seen witch doctors. Uh, when I did this camp last week, there was another guy who was as scary-looking as I am. And uh, when we let down our hair, we both kind of looked like witch doctors. And that was pointed out by a couple of people. Moses' father-in-law uh, is a Midianite priest, a pagan priest, who hears what God did to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, who hears what God does on behalf of Israel, and he comes to Moses in Exodus, and he says to Moses, really beautiful language, who is God like the Lord? Now I know that your God is the true God, and he worships, he offers sacrifice, and then he sits down, Exodus 18, and appears to have like some sort of a communion meal with Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel. Here's the point. What God did for his people was to be shouted to the nations. It was to make the nations tremble to the point of repentance. Like, uh-oh, here comes a God, and he's knocking down all of our gods like little toys. Uh, what did God do with the plagues? Every plague in uh, the ten plagues of Egypt, every one of those plagues is a God of Egypt. So almost imagine God like an invading conqueror coming from a distant land, and here's the heart of Egypt, Pharaoh's house and home. And as God comes, he encounters the outer line of defenses. This is what the ten plagues are. is God defeating the outer lines of defenses one at a time until he comes and he strikes down Pharaoh's true God, which is Pharaoh himself. And when they're all laid low, the people of Israel come marching out. And it goes to the nations. Look what Yahweh the Lord has done. And some of the nations begin coming even to the people of Israel and say, your God really is God. That's what is going on here. Israel is to be a light to the nations. The Exodus is a stage for that. It was not a movement from slavery to freedom, but from slavery to covenant and commission. Israel was to have a commission. And at this point, I want to talk about uh, Joshua 1 and how it's different than the Great Commission. But first, I need my superhero juice. I wonder, too, do you think this water really comes all the way from Fiji? I'm not sure. So what is similar and what is different, Joshua 1 and Matthew 28? Well, I love the connection here. This particular phrase that occurs in both that is the very lifeblood of each commission, and it's the promise of God's presence. Moses, my servant, is dead. You don't have Moses anymore. But as God now saying, right, to Joshua, you're on. It's your time. You are now going to rise up, and yes, you're going to go into this land, and you're going to militarily engage the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, the Termites, can't sleep at nights, the Bug Bites, come on, help me out, there's a couple I've missed. The which ones? Thermites, mosquito bites, we've got to get it all out of our system, let's go. <laughs> all right, so you're going to engage all those people, but you're going to defeat all those people, but not because you're all that, right? I mean, Israel has no military experience, this is not a people of war, they have no weapons, 
right? I mean, th- th- this is, they're a bunch of farmers. They're from right around here. This is not a militarily trained people. And yet, they're going to win. Why? What is the confidence that their commission will be successful? God makes it very clear. Twice he says to them, be strong and courageous. Later, only uh, be very strong and very courageous. Why are they to be strong and courageous, very strong, very courageous? One simple reason, I'm with you. God says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. That's the heart of the covenant, right? I will be your God. You'll be my people. I will dwell in your midst. That's not, by the way, just the language of the tabernacle. I'm preaching through Exodus right now, and uh, we're in Exodus 29. And you know, the climax of the tabernacle is the presence of God, right? Exodus 40, the glory comes down, and God dwells in the midst of the people. But you've you got to get this, friends. I, mean, I think if you get this, like you start to flex a little bit, get excited, like, okay, we've got this, we're going to go. Okay? Uh, the presence of God is not simply that which occurs in the context of worship. It certainly does in the context of worship, but the same language is here in the context of commission. In the context of commission, God says, I will be with you and I will not leave you nor forsake you until I have finished my mission through you. And so Israel goes into the land, and they do exactly what God, well, they don't do exactly what God says, but you know what I mean. They get kind of close to sort of obeying. They go in, and God topples their enemies. He eventually does what he said, even though it's the next generation, because the first generation cowers in unbelief and disobedience. But the success is bound to the presence of God. But notice the particular kind of commission it is. You're to go in with the edge of a physical sword and slice and dice until there are none left and all your enemies have fallen before you. Israel was to go into the land of these pagan nations and kill them with the edge of the sword. This is where we notice a significant contrast to the Great Commission. Because Israel was to bring death, physical death, with a physical sword, right? That's not what we do in the Great Commission, right? I mean, right, right? Okay, we'll make sure we're really clear about that. That's not a mistake that we can make. So Israel's, I mean, the church is not to do that. Okay, but the commission is very similar in a lot of ways, isn't it? You're to go into all the world, go to all the nations, but rather than bring death with the edge of the sword, we are to bring life with the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. You are to go to all the nations, church. This is the second most important thing you do, and second two, number two is not that bad. Right? Uh, you are to go into all the nations and bring life with the sword. But it's the sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God. And what guarantees? I, my guess is when I give these talks, people look at me like, you know, it sounds great, but we're not doing that. Or, you know, it sounds great, but we haven't seen a whole lot of evangelistic fruit in our church. Or it sounds great, but, you know, frankly, we're just terrified of our neighbors down the street. I get it. I get all those excuses, and none of them really work. Because God is with His church. Jesus said, a whole lot of authority has been given to me. No, he didn't say it that way. 
all authority. That's right. Correct me. I'm going to do that playfully. I want to be corrected. Uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. If God was able to topple his enemies in the land of Canaan, how much more is he able to topple the hearts of people who are bound up in paganism like a Midianite priest named Jethro or everyone else that you see in the Bible that comes to faith and you, you're here. Not because your grandparents were Christian, because God is gracious to you. You are here as living proof that God saves the unsavable. I am here. I'll tell the story in another context. Because God is able to save whoever he wants to save. The power, of course, is not in us. It's not in our charm. It's not in our wit. It's not in our intellect. It's not anything to do with us. The battle belongs to the Lord, right? And he guarantees that his church will be successful. And he not only guarantees it, he displays it through all of history because he's always been a God who is on mission. So I want to close with a couple of quotes. And I'm going to be dangerously close to on time. It's not usually my style. I'm, a, you know, I'm from St. Augustine, Florida. You know, there's, there's on time, and then there's St. Augustine time, and they're usually off by about 10 minutes. Okay, uh, so just a couple of things. There's tons of things to say. We'll talk about a lot more, but a couple of things to say here. Uh, first of all, uh, there is no such thing as a missional church. If you go home and say, you know what, uh, we want to be a missional church now, uh, I, I just would like to say that's an oxymoron. Uh, it's redundant. The reason why is... Every church is a missional church. That's what it means to be the church. Maybe the better way to put it is we want to be obedient to who it is we've called to be. That's a better way to say it. But there aren't missional churches and non-missional churches. If you are part of the body of Christ in this present evil age, you are by nature on mission. It's just part of the job description. Uh, with uh, the glory of Christ comes also the commission of Christ. With the crown comes the cross. It's a package deal. You can't split Christ into pieces, right, regarding his benefits. And you can't split Christ into pieces regarding his commission. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is on mission, and he carries out his mission through the agency of the church. So every church is a missional church. The question simply is, how obedient are we being to our mission? Okay, I'd say it a little bit differently then. It's not that God has a mission for his church, to quote one author, but that God has a church for his mission. See that? Uh, sometimes churches will kind of go to gymnastics trying to find out its secret mission. Oh, where's the secret? This is pretty clear. It's even in red letters. Now you know it's inspired. All right, we have a lot of King James-only folks in my context, so jokes like that are usually received a bit better, but it's okay. <laughs> I had someone tell me, you know, we're having this little debate about Bible translations, and it got to the weirdest point in the conversation when the gentleman said very politely, well, you know what, if the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I just let him have it. I just, I just... Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. John Stott, mission arises from the heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to ours and through ours. Mission is the global outreach of the global people of a global God. Everything that the church does, in a certain sense, is a part of our outworking 
of our part in the Great Commission. This is God's script from seed to rose. This is his flower. This is his plan. This is what he is doing in this present uh, evil age. And we are called to participate in it. And we all have a part to play in it. So one of the things I want to kind of set now as a stage setting question uh, that we will answer perhaps the most clearly in our last session, but we're going to build towards that, is here's what, be with me now as we ask the question, what is your part in the mission of God? Everybody has a part. No one is out. This is, this is like one of those politically correct games that we play where everyone plays and everyone wins. I'm not quite sure if we're doing that. Why do we keep score? But anyway, okay, everyone has a part in the mission of God. It may be different parts, and we're going to respect those nuances, but everyone is in this story. The question is, are we living submissively, happily, and joyfully with confidence in the Lord? Or are we living subversively? Like, God, yeah, you might have this Great Commission thing going, but I'm just not interested. And you know, we'll push back and do some repenting together. We'll hopefully walk away very uh, encouraged. So, I'm going to stop there. And I think uh, we are postured now to take our break. Alan, correct me. And we, re- come, we start again at 11? Or... All right, be on break for a few minutes. I was just asked a, a serious and deep theological question. Uh, would I like cream and sugar in my coffee? And I'd like you to know, if it has cream and sugar, it's not coffee. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a purist. I like it strong. I like it black. I like it with a little bit of attitude. That's coffee. When you start to add all those frou-frou-y adjectives... At Starbucks, it's no longer coffee. It's room temperature ice cream. And there is a difference. And that's why it costs, by the way, as much as ice cream. All right. So, uh, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Let me just tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to uh, talk uh, about some things from Matthew chapter 1. And then... We're going to open up for Q&A and have a nice little time of chatting together about that. Uh, Once again, uh, let's hear the word of God together. This is the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Etzor, and Etzor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I can only imagine what my friends are thinking now that I just read that text at a conference on evangelism. And uh, Lord, we ask that you'd help us to understand not only why texts like this are in the Bible, uh, but why names like this are in the story of Jesus and how it tells us our story and encourages us to want to share that story with others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So at our, our church now, we're going through the book of Exodus and uh, I kind of imagine that maybe for folks in our church, you had a similar experience as I'm reading through those names, probably wondering, why is this in the Bible? Are any of you thinking that? Are any of you not thinking that? Uh, maybe you're wondering as well, why is he reading from this part of the Bible at a conference where the subject is evangelism? That's a pretty good question. This is pretty good coffee, by the way. The only bad coffee has cream and sugar in it, but okay. I'm going to start a fight there, and I'm going to lose. Right, so, so why this, from gene, uh, this genealogy in Matthew? Uh, well, I, I want to, you know, I'm still kind of, I feel like I'm stage setting. Uh, at times, I'm going to comfort you. At times, I'm going to push you, and I, I don't mind doing both, and I would like to hopefully do both well by God's grace. Uh, this text uh, is a comforting one and a beautiful one in a lot of ways. Uh, so, you know, I, I came to Christ as a skeptic. I'll tell a little bit more of that uh, here in a few minutes. Uh, but when you look at the Bible, there are a lot of places that are just strange, right? Uh, there are stories that are hard to make sense of. There are parts of the Bible uh, that just make you wonder, why on earth is that in there? And how could that possibly ever be uh, edifying to think through? Uh, I will admit, uh, I love the genealogies of the Bible, which just tells you I'm a nerd. But I, I wear the shirt proudly. Um, my daughter has a shirt that says nerdy by nature with these really big glasses. It's absolutely adorable. Uh, but it's, it's not just that. Uh, the genealogies are in the Bible for a very important reason. They tell the story of how God has kept his promise. God promised Adam and Eve children, right? Promised to Abraham children. He promises to those children at times an inheritance. And names are the means by which uh, you keep track of what belongs to whom and why, who came from whom, and uh, how that story is important. And uh, for a lot of us, uh, maybe not uh, so much these days, but a lot of us could probably recognize, particularly if you think of like your grandma's house, uh, that hallway that you walk down at your grandparents' house, maybe your own house, that has this collage of pictures. Uh, last night, uh, we stayed at the Prince home, and uh, he doesn't have it quite this way. Actually, he did in one room. He also had this family book of these people going back to the Netherlands, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And I, I love these family collages uh, because of the time-lapse dynamic that changes, right? The very poor photo quality, 
you know, from the 17 or 1800s, whatever you got, uh, where people, they just look strange. I don't know if it's because they just look strange or because the photo quality was that bad. I mean, maybe we've been all Photoshopped to the point now we look a lot better in pictures, I guess. But uh, when you look at those pictures, the old ones are kind of in black and white. It might be a little bit smoky, you know, the way the pictures look. The people are kind of distorted in the picture. Uh, and those are the oldest pictures. And then uh, the next set is a little bit more recent. The photo quality is a bit better. Right, you go on down the set, eventually maybe you get to your own grandparents, like, okay, hey, I remember those, never met those, the cowboy and Indian looking ones, but I, I recognize those folks, there's grandma and grandpa, you know, there's my parents, there's my dad, you know, that nice handsome white guy with an afro, a picture from the 70s, I love those pictures, uh, white guys with afros, that's just a cool thing to me, um, the 70s did happen, that's right. If anyone wants, at some down point in the camp, someone wants to break out those pictures, I, I just love it, fantastic. Uh, Larry Wilson is in this presbytery now, right? And a lot of you know I'm talking about retired minister, fantastic guy. Well, he was the original hippie in the OPC way before me. And at one point in his house, a bonding moment, he showed me this picture, and I just looked at him like, I love you. <laughs> so if he shows up, and I think he might, ask him about that picture. Did you carry that? I think it was a driver's license. Anyway, have a little fun with that. Okay, so you move down the picture trail from, you know, the old, old, old folks way back in the day. Grandma and grandpa there. Uh, there's mom and dad. And there's bouncing baby you. Down at the end, right? As though this is the last scene or the most current one. Uh, that collage of pictures tells the story of you. This is how you got here. This is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here, here are some folks back there that were really great. Here's the guy who, yeah, that's awkward, <laughs> right? Uh, here's, here's the beauty, and here's the pain. Here's a missing picture. You know, all, all these pictures are there. They tell uh, the real, the honest, the sometimes beautiful, the sometimes very broken story of your family. Well, a genealogy does the very same thing. It tells both the beautiful and the broken story of the people of God, but it ultimately tells the story of God who is a covenant-making God, also proving to be a covenant-keeping God. And so the names, as you read through them in uh, Matthew, tell the story of Jesus, going uh, all the way back to Abraham all the way down to the birth of Christ. It covers quite a bit of time. Uh, there are major uh, mile markers here uh, in the story. Three times you were told these little transitional uh, statements, these three different 14 generations that are grouped. And those are kind of benchmarks in the history of Israel that just remind the people of God, okay, from here to there, this is what happened. Okay, got it. From here to there, this is what happened. Okay, got it. From here to there, is the end of the story. Okay, now we know where we are. This is a chain unbroken, and that's very important because God made promises that depend upon this chain being unbroken. So if you're a Bible critic, you're going to work real hard to try to break this chain. Chain doesn't break. We believe the Bible, for me, at least as you know, a young skeptic that began to wrestle with this stuff, uh, I actually uh, was through things like the genealogies, but over time I became even more and more confident uh, about the Bible. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I, I love looking at things like genealogies. When Christmas comes around, I preach a genealogy. Love that look. 
uh, that I get from people that are visiting the church, came to hear a Christmas sermon, and they get a genealogy, and they're like, what is he doing? Uh, it's even better, you know, the, the strange look I get. I, in the wintertime, we get a lot of Canadians that come down, and my elders come in through a side door that's right there, and I go up on stage with one of my elders before the service, and inevitably I'll look out, and I'll see a nice little visiting couple come, and uh, the one will look at the other, like, Surprises me too. So these genealogies are full of surprises. There are people in here that are surprising to see in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, imagine for a moment that you were going to tell the story of who all is in uh, the backstory of Jesus. Who would be there? Who wouldn't be there? Well, you might, uh, you might be surprised to see some of the folks that are in there and we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Normally, and if you look at the other genealogies in the Bible, normally genealogies focus almost exclusively on male names. And uh, there's a reason for that. It's not a sexist reason or anything like that. It's just the reality was, just like in today, when you get married, typically uh, you know, the man's last name uh, is taken. Uh, that's how you perpetuate uh, inheritance. That's how you perpetuate family lineage. It's, just, you know, it's a very old biblical practice. And so usually when you're looking at genealogies, it's the name of males that are listed and described. In Matthew's genealogy, you have the name of five ladies. And this is where I'm really going to camp, and it's glorious, and I love where it goes. But you have uh, these names that go from uh, Abraham to deportation, uh, before and after, and then uh, you come down finally to Christ, and you get uh, his incarnation. But I want to talk about these five ladies for just a few minutes, uh, because it's beautiful and humbling to see the names that are included here. The first is Tamar. And if you know the story of Tamar in Genesis 38, uh, you know this is somewhere between like PG-13 or higher uh, to being really awkward and embarrassing. Uh, this is that story I preached through Genesis uh, at our church. And I remember when I got to Genesis 38 getting emails from parents who were wondering, so you're going to, what are you going to do? <laughs> How are you going to handle that? I'm just going to, first of all, I'm going to read it. That should kind of open the door to awkwardness, and then we'll just deal with it. So, you know, Genesis 38 tells a story, right? Uh, uh, Judah uh, has a daughter-in-law named Tamar, married to one of his sons, and that son dies. And the, the law uh, provided for the care and support of widows, but it also uh, provided the idea that if a man dies, uh, his brother had an obligation to help raise up a child in the name of the deceased father. And so a brother was supposed to fulfill uh, an obligation to do that. And she uh, has this dynamic where she is waiting for uh, this son to be given to her. And it, it doesn't happen. And not only that, uh, there are brothers that come into the picture. And they just prove to be very, I'll just you know, say it in a very sanitized way perhaps, uh, but they are very unfaithful in fulfilling their obligation to perpetuate the name of their deceased brother, and they die. Okay, And in the context of all this, uh, Tamar goes on to wait, and to wait, and to wait, and Judah fails to perform uh, the duties of a faithful father-in-law. He ultimately fails to protect and provide for Tamar, and Tamar uh, rather... Uh, 
sinfully takes the matter into her hands, dresses up like a prostitute, this is all bad, I'm not justifying any of this, seduces her father-in-law and becomes pregnant as she's dressed up as a prostitute. I mean, this is, this is a horrible story, right? Nobody talks about this at family reunions. <laughs> this is the one that just doesn't come up. This is awkward. My son, uh, he's not in the room at the moment, uh, he has a very black and white way of seeing uh, the world and the way the Lord has created. I mean, he, he memorizes uh, social uh, emotions. And so, you know, if he's in a conversation and there's some awkwardness, he'll just say out loud, this is awkward, and walk away. This is awkward. And you kind of want to walk away. And it gets even worse. Because Tamar becomes pregnant, and Judah... Uh, basically appears to use this as an opportunity to remove this uncomfortable truth and have her put to death. And she holds out this garment thing, happens to be his, and says, well, I'm pregnant by this man, and holds up that which belongs to Judah. And he's like, she's more righteous than me. Now, isn't that a, just a kind of a gross, uncomfortable, embarrassing sinful story? It is. You're supposed to have that kind of feeling, right? And that's in the genealogy of Jesus. Alongside all these other hard-to-pronounce male Hebrew names. The second one is the story of Rahab, who I feel like history has done this tremendous disservice to. Because everyone knows the name Rahab, but we always add two words to her name that, technically speaking, the Bible does not perpetuate uh, beyond when you first meet her. But everyone knows her as Rahab the... Isn't that terrible? Who wants to be known like that? Right? Even somebody with a past. She's not called Rahab the redeemed. She's called Rahab the prostitute. I just think about that. But here you have Rahab, right? This uh, pagan prostitute, Gentile prostitute from the land of Jericho, uh, a city that God absolutely decimated as Israel's coming into the land. And Rahab the prostitute is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And I just want to point out, here you have now a Hebrew woman in Tamar who tells a rather awkward and embarrassing story. Uh, but here you have uh, great-great-grandma the prostitute. There's her picture. Yeah, we don't usually talk about her. So you have a woman who did what Tamar does. You have a woman of the night who professionally sold her body to men and is known through all of history, even church history, as Rahab the prostitute in the story of Jesus. Uh, then you come down in verses 5 and 6 to Ruth, who is uh, you know, the Moabite uh, darling who becomes uh, you know, the wife of Boaz and the great, great grandmother of King David, right? This beautiful story. But I preached to the book of Ruth, and the book of Ruth is itself awkward and embarrassing uh, because the book of Ruth begins there being famine in the land, which is a result of sin. God promised, uh, if you obey and are faithful, the land will be fruitful, and you will be blessed. And if you disobey and rebel against me, you will experience famine, famine and death. And so the book of Ruth begins following right after the book of Judges. Everyone's done what's right in their own eyes, God's judged them. There's famine on the land. They're now going away from the presence of God, seeking food in Gentile places. This is all bad, and all the men die. This is the curse, 
Ruth becomes the emblem of the curse who is redeemed by the grace of God and drawn with sweet cords of love into the family of God. Uh, It's a beautiful story for Ruth, but the backdrop of the book of Ruth is awkward if you're an Israelite. It's the time of the judges, and this is the wages of sin. So for all the beauty that Ruth holds forth, she also exposes a down moment, a bottom of the V in the life and the history of Israel. The next name, uh, it's really interesting the way this is worded. If you look at verse 6, okay? Uh, If you look at verse 6, if I get this in just the right way in the light, anybody makes any jokes about this, just remember I have a violent past. I've I've been to jail. I'm willing to go back. Don't push it. All right, I'm just kidding. So, in verse 6, it said, And David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Look at it. And David was the father of Solomon by whom? The wife of Uriah. Very interesting choice of words, right? It doesn't say, and David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. That's what we would call sanitizing the story. It says, rather, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So here is David, as far as kings go, the high water mark of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the best of the best of the best, sir, who as king has an affair with the wife of one of the captains in his army and then tries to cover it up deceitfully. And when that fails, he has the man murdered to protect himself. This is all wrong. The child dies. Everything about the situation is broken. If David is the best of Israel's kings, this is one of the worst of Israel's moments. And David, who has a child with the wife of Uriah, uh, has that recorded even in the genealogy of Matthew. I think what Matthew is doing here is significant. What he is not doing is sanitizing the document. What he is not doing is removing the awkward truths of Israel's history. What he is doing is showing that the storyline of Jesus is a broken but beautiful one. Uh, This is a Savior who's coming in the world not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance, to seek and to save not which has already been found, but that which is very clearly lost. If you can get this genealogy and not realize the people of God are a broken, to be theologically precise, jacked up, Family, you're missing the point. Uh, We are a broken and jacked up family. Your family is broken and jacked up. My family is broken and jacked up. Some of them more, some of them less. The people of God's story is a broken story, and the only one who can fix it is the last name in the story. The one to whom all the lines of intersection are pointing, and that is Jesus. Jesus comes into the world by way of a very broken story because he's come for broken people like you and like me. He comes to become a part of our story. The amazing thing is that given these people that he would enter into this family. Were there some finer people? Was this the best he could come up with? This is the best he could come up with because there are no good people. Right? There's none good. There are no perfect families. No perfect husbands, no perfect wives, no perfect kids. Not even in the OPC. We tried really hard. It still hasn't worked. 
Okay? Jesus comes in uh, to be a part of a broken family, a broken story, to write that which is broken. And uh, not only does he come, uh, but the marvel of mysteries is that the father sends his son into this broken story. And I, I have to admit, you know, there are some things that you, like, you kind of know, and there are some things over time, as you experience that truth in different contexts, the things that you know become more penetrating and even disturbing. And for me, the gospel is one of them. Uh, my, my son is out of the room, but I want to tell a quick story about when Carl uh, was real little, when he was about, I don't know, four, around four years old, uh, he had a, a life-threatening episode uh, where he had a, a double infection that nearly killed him. It was a real serious infection. Basically what happened is he had a, he had a very serious infection, but he also had strep. Apparently, like one in three people have strep at any given moment, so that means like 30% of you are sickos and the rest of you don't know it. Now it's awkward. <laughs> but I know no one's going to drink from my coffee cup. So apparently, if a real strong infection gets treated with a mild antibiotic, you create uber-infection. You just you strengthen the beast. And so basically, that's what happened. Carl got this thing, kind of blew up on his neck. Uh, it, was, uh, it was an infection in his system somehow. We took him to the hospital. They gave him a mild antibiotic. The next day, this thing was closing off his air passages. They're like, we called instead what's going on. They're like, don't even wait for an ambulance. Drive him straight. You've got to go to a specialist hospital an hour away. You know, we're terrified. It's the parent's worst nightmare. You know these drills, right? So he spends a week just about in the hospital, and they're trying to deal this thing. Prepped him for surgery a couple of times. Didn't want to do the surgery weren't quite sure what else to do. It was just a real nail-biter, anxious situation. And, of course, as a parent, uh, you know, what do you do? You, you pray, right? And you, and you beg God for mercy for your child's life. Uh, you have that strange sense of uh, all you want is to be able to take their place, but you can't. So you pray some more, and you're begging God and contemplating all these scary things. And, you know, in the, we had to keep walking him because part of the goal is to keep his metabolism moving to get this stuff out of his system. So late at night, one night, my wife and I did this in shifts because our other child was at home. So I'm there, and I'm walking Carl late at night. He's got this little, you know, this little pick line on a rolling stick, and we're going around the room, and I'm holding this tiny little thing. We go down the hallway, and on a hospital floor like this, there are broken babies and kids in every room. So, I mean, it's just a collage of beautiful children now broken. And in every one of these rooms, there's a different story, right? Uh, some of them had lots of family members there, and it's real serious, and you feel the emotion from outside the room. Others, you know, you walk past the same room several different times, different times of the day, never see a family member. You wonder. Hospital, I mean, a car crash, parents die, babies hanging on, where's the family, right? You just, really, I'm, you're supposed to feel some emotion here. And I, I felt a ton of emotion, and I'm not really a compassionate person. If, if, you, if you need mercy, go see the camp nurse. I will not help you. <laughs> mercy is not my gift. It's just not, it's not in me. I, I think I had some mercy in me once, and it's probably gone. But I felt overwhelmed with compassion for these broken little kids in each of these rooms. And then it really hit me in a fairly profound way that for all the compassion I felt for all these broken little kids... Uh, there was not a single kid in one of those rooms for whom I would give up my son. 
not a one. That makes me insensitive, I'll wear it. There was not a single kid in one of those rooms for whom I would have given up my son as much compassion as I have felt. And I felt a lot for those little broken kids. But that actually wasn't the part that really hit me the hardest. What hit me the hardest, and I still don't get it. Like, I have a PhD now. And I, I, I understand so much less now than I did before. And this is one of the beauty, beautiful things that I understand. It's like the older I get as a Christian, the less I understand the gospel and the more it means to me. Because God didn't give up his son, beloved, for sweet, innocent little kids. Those broken little collages on that hospital floor. He gave up his son for self-professed rebels. Like me. Studied sinners. Like you. He gave up his son. In my words, he gave up his Carl. Not for sweet, innocent, broken little stories, but for stories like this. An adulterer, a prostitute, a murderer, broken people. And beloved, that's how we come into this story, is God gave up his son so that you could be adopted and become a part of his story. I don't understand what I just said. I really don't. I believe it. But I don't understand it. And frankly, I'm quite overwhelmed by it. And the more I think about it, the more beautiful and perplexing it gets. The older my kids get, the more I love them. The harder it's magic me sacrificing them uh, for somebody else I don't like. You figure that, you take me out on a walk, I'm eager to hear it. Because I'm overwhelmed. And I want you to be overwhelmed by the beauty and the tenderness of the gospel. And I want to kind of land, begin to land the plane on this point. This is something I say uh, in a lot of contexts that that really means a lot to me. Uh, I want to ask you the question, how did you get here? I don't mean how did you get to camp. How did you get into the story? How did you become a part of the family of Jesus? Well, there are a few trails here, just like there are multiple trails in the genealogy of Jesus. Some of these stories are fine and fair. Some of these stories are really easy. Some of these stories are very beautiful and tender. Some of them are really rough. Uh, I'm going to tell you just briefly how I came to Christ. I grew up in a non-Christian home. My dad's a career Marine. We did not go to church when I was a kid. Uh, he was a fantastic soldier, great at killing people, not really good at raising kids. It's the truth. Left my family abruptly when I was 12. Uh, left my mom to raise four kids by herself. Still sometimes I feel a little angry about it, uh, especially now as a dad trying to raise kids and seeing how hard that is. I get mad at my dad. I talked to him yesterday. I still feel my own voice in my chest. High school years were pretty rough. Started doing drugs at age 12. My little brother is 10. He started doing the same thing. Uh, by the time we were 16, I had a fake ID. We were, we were perfecting the art of sin. Uh, by the time I graduated high school, I'd been shot at twice, literally shot at twice, once in a car after a big gang fight, got in a lot of fights in high school and gang problems. Uh, once was shot at and the bullet missed me by a foot, hit the guy right beside me, the bullet literally went into his back. He went to the emergency room. I went home in a different car because I was on probation and knew I'd go to jail. Uh, that was one of two times 
I was shot. Another was in California. My mom gave up on my brother and me for a year, sent us to live with my older sister. That wasn't going so well. I ended with her saying, no, can't do it. Sent us back to North Carolina. Failed my senior year of high school doing dumb stuff. This is not a great story, right? I graduated high school, I'm pretty sure, without reading a single book. My daughter reads a book a day. I tell her this story. She looks at me like, I don't know, Dad. <laughs> I didn't know. I was a self-proclaimed idiot, studying all the stupidity in the world, mastering it day by day. And out of high school, just smoking pot, surfing, delivering pizza, I uh, started a recreation degree. This part's kind of cool. I, my first degree is, I have five degrees. My first one is actually in therapeutic recreation. That's why I'm such a fun OPC pastor. Because <laughs> I've, I've studied, I have a degree in how to be fun. So that's, that's how it goes. So halfway through that, I quit college and decided to go follow the Grateful Dead around the uh, country. So that's literally what I did. I, I sold everything I owned. I jumped in a car with my little brother. We played guitar, had a bag of weed, a bunch of acid, and off we went and lived for a year selling drugs, doing drugs, and smelling like patchouli. And, you know, a lot of people can drive, a lot of things can drive people to their knees. For me, part of it was the smell of patchouli. If you like patchouli, it's okay, but I get a twitch because it's used to cover body odor by hippies that don't bathe. And when you're around that for a whole year, as fine as it smells, it becomes like really overwhelming. So if you like patchouli, don't be offended, but just know I, I get kind of erratic around it. So at the end of a year of this, I decided can't take anymore. Decided to go back to North Carolina. As I'm getting on a bus, someone gives me a Bible that I'd never read. Get on a bus for a couple days, have this Bible uh, and my guitar and a backpack. It's all I have to my name. Begin reading. Uh, the Bible. My little brother's name is Mark. He has a book of the Bible named after him. I was a little jealous. But I read the Gospel of Mark. And I actually think that's where I was converted. It's in the pages of Scripture on the back of Greyhound bus. It's pretty unusual. And maybe not the way that many of us come to Christ. Right? It began a, a beautiful and bumpy trail of trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian and all kinds of uh, crazy things and struggles. And, you know, to be honest with you, I love Jesus. I didn't like Christians a lot. I grew up in the Bible Belt and church and Christians and the clothes you wear on Sunday. All that stuff for me was pretty tough. God was very gracious. I got saved over and over and over in the Baptist church. I literally walked an aisle <laughs> in a Baptist church so many times the, the pastor started telling me no. <laughs> how, how harsh is that? <laughs> You want to walk the aisle and have just been told, no, I'll talk, I'll call you. I'd get that under his breath. I mean, this is really awkward stuff, but God was very, very gracious. And, you know, many, many years later, I stand before you as a servant in the church and love the church, love my family, love the gospel, love what we're talking about. And part of the reason why is because God's saving crazy people. No, I really mean it. I, I, I'm going to just nuance the thing two ways and, and then stop. Uh, one is to say, I want you to believe. Like, if there's any encouragement from my story, because there's a discouraging part of it, I'm going to address that second. But if there's any encouragement from it, uh, let it be this. God's saving weirdos. There are hippies out there doing drugs. There are gang people out there being shot at. They're going to potentially become future Orthodox Presbyterian pastors. Do you believe that? Do you believe that... God is so strong, so able to not only topple the 
pagan nations in the land of Canaan. He can rescue people on the back of greyhound buses. He can do really amazing, extraordinary things and that he's winning people into the body of Christ from all kinds of stage, stations and places in life that you may have absolutely nothing in common with and can't even imagine. I, I would like to stretch the limits of your horizon. I'd like to stretch the creative juices uh, in your mind to imagine God doing, to expect to see God doing things that maybe you have seen and maybe you haven't. Okay? Because all authority is his. The other thing I want to say, and, and I asked if there could be as many of our like covenant kids here as possible. So I, I know when I share this story, uh, covenant kids uh, sometimes have the reaction, maybe even some of you adults have the reaction saying, you know what, that guy's crazy. And that was a crazy story. And I don't have a story like that. I, I've got that kind of boring family hall, right? Uh, where I've got all these, you know, Vander somebodies back there, Right? And they all went to church. And for like four generations, we've occupied the same pew. And I grew up with grandma and grandpa sitting there in church beside me. And I've been catechized as long as I can remember. I've been in church as long as I can remember. You know, frankly, uh, maybe I have to be like the maniac on stage to have anything to say. And I want to push back on that. I want to tell you very sincerely, some of the folks here with me have heard this before, uh, that uh, between my story and yours, if I were asked if I could pick, I'd take yours all day long. I sincerely wish that when I talked to my dad, it didn't hurt. Right? I wish I had a full and functional family growing up. Uh, I did actually go to jail, and I didn't like it. I have been shot at, and it literally scared the hell out of me. Okay? Uh, I have friends I partied with who died when I was in high school, and the only difference is they went home in a different car and got in a car accident. I went home in that car. God preserved me. Which is the finer story? To have to go to hell? To find your way to heaven? Or to be able to say, God preserved me in the arms of a family that has loved me. God has preserved me in the arms of a church that in spite of its imperfections, has loved me. I've had people that have catechized me and uh, spoke truth into my life, and when I needed it, put their finger in my chest and called me out on things, have walked me uh, down through the stages of life. And I, I am here by not only the gracious providence of God, frankly, the gracious protection of God. Uh, I, I, don't, I have kids now, right? I don't want them to have my story. Not at all. I want them to have your story. I have kids in our church. I'd love them to see them. I'd love to see them uh, break cycles of pain and brokenness. You have people in your church, right? Uh, we want to see them break cycles of pain and brokenness. We want to see families well ordered. We want to see covenant purity and love for the church and love for the family and all these beautiful things. So here's my point in a nutshell. Don't think for a moment that if you don't have a crazy story, you don't have something to talk about. You have the most beautiful story. I think yours is actually more amazing that God has spared you from some of the pain and the brokenness and the stupidity that so many of us have to go through to find their way home safely in the arms of Christ. If God has led you down a softer and sweeter trail, that is wonderful. You've got the best story to share. You've got the greatest reason to share. And frankly, uh, you have alarmingly wonderful opportunities because you can invite people into a home 
and show them a family that to me as a teenager would have been absolutely otherworldly and I would have been jealous. When I talk on the last day about cultivating cultural evangelism, I'll circle back to this. Uh, but I want to pinpoint here, you have fantastic things for which to be grateful. And if anything is to drive us to want to share the gospel, this much I'm very clear on, it's not guilt. Guilt-driven evangelism is horrible. But to be overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness, not only for the gospel, but for the family that God has wrapped around you, the church that God has wrapped around you, thankfulness, thankfulness-driven evangelism is really exciting. It genuinely inspires. It's contagious. Nobody, if, if you're just sharing the gospel with somebody because you feel guilty, right? Like, they'll see right through that. That's junk. But thankfulness, friends, is the greatest reason to want to tell others about Christ. You are in this story, and you have a beautiful story to share. All right, I'll stop there, and we'll take questions uh, for 10 minutes. Alan, is that right? Yeah, that sounds So if your question is really hard, stand at the back of the room. Hey, Bill. I try to be brave when of God's amazing graces you just shared with us. In terms of priority, of course, worship is number one. Yeah. But as I think of Eric in the Greyhound bus, reading the book of Mark, you were not Yeah. The edification of the saints and preparing them within the body of Christ, in my view, is number two, and then sending out would be number three. Not according to boss or nation, but that's the way I'm thinking about it. I wonder how you would think about that. You want to package that in a question for us, Eric? That we can record? Yeah, would discipleship um, be a greater priority than uh, evangelism? I guess, in my mind, in a certain sense, it's a false dichotomy to pit evangelism and discipleship too far from one another. In other words, the Great Commission, I don't think, makes a distinction per se between evangelizing and discipling. It's going to the world and what? Make disciples, Right? which includes, you know, the front door, if you will, to discipleship is evangelism, okay? So if we could agree that evangelism and discipleship are bound to one another, then I would agree with you and say you're right. If you're still disagreeing with Boston Machen, I'm just going to stop listening. Um, I'm pretty hard-headed. But I, I appreciate the point. Uh, I do think that the two go hand in hand. And I do want to say, and one of the, so I'll, how many of you attend uh, either Harvest or Redeemer in Ada? Anybody? Okay, yeah, so on Sunday, I'll be talking about the woman at the well, John 4, and just one little thing I'll say here that you kind of spurred me to think about is it's really interesting at the end of that chapter how she goes back to her townspeople and says, come and see Jesus. And what's kind of striking to me about that is what she doesn't do. 
She doesn't get baptized. She doesn't go to catechism class. And she doesn't go through an EE course. She just falls in love. And it's interesting that she who just met Jesus and fell in love became, I think at once, both disciple and lowercase e evangelism. So in my mind, I think the two kind of go hand in hand. So he's smiling, so we're, we're good. <laughs> Other questions? See, the closer you get to lunch, the easier it is to discourage questions. <laughs> John Knox. Ooh. Ooh. That's a, repeat the question. What is my favorite Old Testament gospel preaching text? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, yesterday, yesterday, I'm losing track of time now. Um, R.C. Sproul would say Genesis 15. God parts, has Abraham part the animals and stuff. I, you know, honestly, I'm going to have to come back on that. In terms of preaching the gospel, I think it's everywhere, Right? Uh, probably Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, um, just because of the story that I told with my son. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about Hebrews 11, and it connects back to Genesis 22. And Yeah, I guess I'm going to have to say it's Genesis 22. I, I am really baffled. Like, I don't want to... I'm just really baffled with the idea... We talk so much about the son and his love for us, and I really get that. You know, I'm still a young dad in my own mind. My kids are 11, 10, and 1. And the longer I parent, the more like the love of the Father has become like this strange and beautiful mystery to me. And Genesis 22 makes me think about the love of the Father, that the Father would give his son and follow through what Abraham didn't have to complete. It just blows me up. So thank you. Good question. Other questions? Young lady back. in the back. That's a great question. Is that your husband beside you or your brother? Neither a friend? Oh, great. I'm the master of awkwardness. I just kind of get right to it. <laughs> I was going to tell him to hug you for the question. So um, anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll have lunch and just kind of sort that out later. I did a wedding over the weekend as well. And there are all these little couples, or they're about to be couples. And as a pastor, you just you kind of see that dynamic, whatever, right? And I'm like, I'll be marrying you soon and you soon. And you guys are two years out, and you guys aren't going to make it. <laughs> So what's really interesting is in uh, Matthew 1, I didn't, uh, I didn't mention this, but so I'm, I'm terrible at math. My wife would refer to me as mathematically in challenge. I had to get a PhD in an area that involved nothing uh, mathematical. There are a few engineers here. And I don't have a clue where you came from. Um, I just don't understand it. Uh, but, but, yeah, so it's interesting, you know, in the, in the Hebrew way of associating numbers uh, with theology, uh, there are certain numbers that are very frustrated, particularly the number six, right? And one number symbolizes perfection, completion, and that's seven. So uh, what's three times 14? 42. 
Three times 42, okay? Uh, what's seven times six? Okay, so commentaries, I'm not just pulling this out of my ear. Commentaries on Matthew's genealogy point out that the way the thing is set up, you're brought to uh, seven times six. You have these three different groupings of 14 that bring you to 42, which would raise the question, where is the last generation? You have six generations included in the genealogy. Where is the rest of the genealogy? Where is the rest of the story? Where is the seventh generation? And I think the answer actually is the church. The church is the last generation that completes the story of genealogy. You're brought up to the point of his incarnation, but Jesus came into the context of starting a family, which is the people of God. Maybe that's a stretch, but at least not on my own, as I suggest. I think that the three groupings of 14 set a stage that someone else is supposed to complete the last act, and the last act is actually the story of the final generation which is the church. So you get all this adopted into the family language in the New Testament, which I think is New Testament's way of saying, you are the rest of the story. So thank you for that question and for enduring that awkward moment with which I punctuated it. Other questions? Eric, for our current generation, the last generation that don't have your story, or stories similar to your story. The kids, they're growing up in the churches. And so they say, you know, it's, 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 it's everything that they breathe. And maybe it's just becoming so familiar to them that it, it's, not, it's not touching them. And you're saying they should really appreciate what they have. Any practical advice that you would say? I mean, you know, I, I think they hear you, but practically, what, you know, if they're not feeling stirred, what should they do? Yeah, so maybe you threw a little curveball at me when you rounded to the idea of not feeling stirred. So two thoughts. One is I really want to accent the idea, and I, I'm nervous about it. Like, I, I fear I could fail you, and it would be unhelpful if the effect of this week was to make you feel guilty for not doing evangelism, and, and that's all you get. That'd be terrible, right? I don't want to do that. And frankly... You know, as a recovering evangelical, whatever that means, um, I feel like there's a lot of guilt-driven evangelism where evangelism becomes like the 11th commandment, right? And if you're not out there doing evangelism, you're a jerk, you know, to state it kind of forcefully. And I, I feel like sometimes that sort of guilt-driven language and rhetoric is out there. That doesn't work for me, right? Just any, nothing you do if it's driven by guilt is really done. And that's just a different form of legalism. But if I, could, if I could say two things. One is, I, I think if you, number well, preaching, uh, gospel-centered preaching is, I think, what stirs the heart, right? Guilt, grace, gratitude that flows from grace is the engine that drives the machinery of evangelism in my mind. Second to that, I, my guess is when you hear a guy like me tell this story, and, you know, they expose the fault line of a broken family and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, sometimes I think, you know, God gives us occasions to just take a step back and look at ourselves and realize, you know, I have a lot to be grateful for. And that, that incurs for all of us different ages and stages of life. But perhaps part of the reason why we can grow slightly insensitive and maybe a little bit less thankful is that we spend so much time, if not exclusively only our time in safe places. 
So you're not familiar with pain. Because, and this is partly, you know, I'm going to get in trouble here, but I think this is also partly the fault of the way that we sometimes approach parenting and church life, is to build such isolated walls around ourselves, our families, and our church that we're never exposed to the painful realities that many people in the world actually endure on a daily basis. So when you come into contact with somebody else who's in pain, you have sympathy, empathy, and compassion for those in pain, and you also appreciate the fact that you're not hurting. So sometimes what we need to do perhaps is be willing to expose, to identify with the pain of other people, not simply as a means of conveying compassion to them, but being prompted uh, to gratitude for the blessings, the little things that we often take for granted that God has given us. We're just coming to the end of our time. If you have any more questions, I'm sure Eric would be willing to talk to you personally. Are there any further announcements that we need to make before everybody is dismissed? And let's uh, give a warm round of applause for our speaker, Eric Watkins.